0: We would like to acknowledge that the making of this podcast takes place on traditional Blackfoot Confederacy territory.
1: We respect and honor the survivors and those lost in the imposed assimilation and genocide committed by colonialism against the Indigenous peoples.
0: We hope that with this podcast, we can raise awareness on these issues and help smooth the road to reconciliation. Well, we're down here in Galt Gardens today. I'm here with Izzy and Francis, if you guys want to say hey. Hello.
1: It's (laughs) in (laughs) sync.
0: It's a pretty beautiful day down here in Lethbridge. We're in Galt Gardens, and yeah, just seeing a lot of everyday stuff, people enjoying the fountain, getting a quick um, cool down, because I think it's going to hit about 35 again here today.
2: Did you know they started naming heat waves now?
0: Really? Just
2: like hurricanes and such. Like, uh, this first global heat wave that happened this summer, they have named it Zoe, and they're going backwards on the alphabet.
0: Well, heat wave Zoe can fuck off. (laughs) Welcome to Depths of Lethbridge, where we talk about the issues that are right in your backyard. We are your hosts, Rick and Izzy.
1: This podcast is focused on bringing light to the issues in Lethbridge revolving around addiction, mental health, racism, and homelessness. Disclaimer, some of the
0: content within this podcast may contain triggering subject matter. So Francis, do you want to tell me where you're from and what your drug of choice has been?
2: You know, I'm from southern Alberta and I am a big drinker. I have a drinking problem here. Recovered drinking problem or always recovering, I guess, but yeah. That's fair.
0: And how did you say we know each other?
2: Uh, we met through the program, um, I think we met the second time I checked myself into the detox center there, and after the third time, you became my sobriety counselor, and we've been chatting ever
0: since. Yeah, it's been quite the journey that we've gotten to know each other over the past year and a half now, I'd say. Oh
2: my gosh, yes. Yeah. I'm flies.
0: It has been. And when did you say you first met Izzy?
2: I met Izzy, I believe. Probably
0: like fall.
2: Yeah, probably the fall. fall. Of last year, probably fall of last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So just under a year, you got. Just to know under each other a year. Then? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep, yeah, my sobriety it must have been close to my sobriety date of August thirty first.
0: So. I gotta ask. So when would you say that drinking really became a problem for you?
2: Oh, drinking. I think it would be. Way back in 2012, I was in a relationship that uh, went sour. She was a little unfaithful with me. And you know what? I used alcohol as a way to forget it while still in the relationship. And when you're numbing, you're not really living life and you're not doing very much. And I, it became a real big problem. And I, since 2018, I had been trying to quit. But I was off and on the wagon, you know, went to detox four times and treatment another time. And then finally, I don't know, I wish I could tell you what clicked, but I kind of have it down. I think it was like three things that happened. Because I went into the uh, detox center on August 31st or around that time with my last drink. And during that time, funny enough, there was Dumb and Dumber on the TV on one of my first days and in that movie there is a quote that I will never forget and it's where Lloyd Christmas says I am sick and tired of trying to eke my way through life and I heard that word eke, and I will never forget it and it terrified me because I knew I had been I like
0: um, that eking your way through eke life. my
2: way through life what a way to put it boil it down And then the second thing really was I saw um, a young lady who was trying to get better. Uh, Somebody snuck in some narcotics into the uh, detox center and she had one huff or two or whatever it was and she overdosed and it took eight shots of Narcan to bring her back. It was terrifying to watch. Now I've never really... I've never touched a drug other than alcohol but to watch that whole thing go down, it terrified me that... Somebody can be trying so hard and they could go so quick, and it was somebody that I cared about, and it realized that's what my parents see every time I do it. And I've done it. I've gone backwards, oh decade, or dozens and dozens of times. So they've seen it so many times, and that really broke my heart. And the third thing was, actually, Ricky said to me, that only two percent of people truly recover from addiction. And I'm not a bit I never played sports. Um, when people ask me what sport I played in high school, I was a great scorekeeper. But when I heard that 2%, I wanted to compete. I wanted to be that 2%. And I've been just dedicating a part of my life to just making sure that my foundation and my recovery are part of my
0: life going forward. I really like that. Those are amazing points. Thank you, Francis. Would you mind just like outlying for me like it seems like there is this idea that ha- people have that homelessness is something that could never happen to them. Could you just you know for us tell us how quickly you went from having a job and having a house to being homeless?
2: Four months. Um, I had a, a job with a company until mid-November of 2020 and uh, you know what? It, uh, I, I got let go because of my drinking. They just couldn't put up with the inconsistencies of just whether or not which Francis was gonna show up to work. So eventually they let me go, but I had enough reserved to just sit at home and drink for four months straight, November, December, January, February. I fell into an extreme state of malnutrition because all I did was a potato-based diet because it was all vodka. Um, and that little pizza sprinkled in there. And I by the end of it, I could barely walk to the liquor store. I had to get to the liquor store, holding up my hands up on the fence, getting me there. And I had to beg for rides back to get five blocks back home so I could just get to the basement so I could drink more. Um, and February, the, the guy, because I left the place pretty dirty, he said, you got to be out at the end of February. In February 2021, my parents put my stuff in a storage locker and then they dropped me off at the shelter and said here you go figure it out and rightfully so i had to i had to figure it out no one's gonna change but i can only change myself so it was a process of figuring that out and it still took about six or seven months before i truly accepted that i had to change what was behind the eyes and between the ears and it was my mindset going forward
0: were you angry at everyone at first
2: at first at your parents no i wasn't because I knew what it was. And I was always warned and the amount of chances I got, and yet I just... And I I didn't blame anybody for it, but because I was so deep in the bottle, I just was in a state of apathy where I just didn't care anymore. I was just okay with what I was.
0: That's
2: fair. It, was, it wasn't really pointing fingers at that point, because I knew what the problem was. I just wasn't willing to fix it or cared enough to fix it.
0: And... For everybody listening, where are
2: you now, Francis? Um, I have a full-time job where I wear a shirt and tie every day. I have repaired almost every relationship in my life, but you know what? Both did not come quick. Both came with the start, and that was making sure my sobriety had a solid foundation before I moved forward, and I knew it took about six months before I went for my interview at the position I'm currently at. And when I got that, I wanted to celebrate. And I knew one of the first things I had to do was go back to AA. And I had to go to meetings because I knew that foundation, none of it was achievable without my sobriety. So I had to make sure that was in the forefront of every action I had going forward. And yeah, like I said, I have a place to live. I'm paying full rent. I am paying off almost every debt I have in my life. Just a small little student loans left that I took out 12 years ago. And to even say these words are super- just unbelievable to me. <laughs> like it's just been quite the transition. And I have Ricky and I have Izzy to thank for that. I have literally everybody to thank along the way. Oh, wonderful trip.
0: And when do you hit your year of sobriety?
2: August 31st. Next Wednesday I hit my 1 Ooh, year wow. of sobriety. Wow. Really excited. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. And it's I got to say it's been amazing to see in your journey so far because who I see now sitting and recording with me and who I first met a year and a half ago. It was an amazing journey to watch you come from there. And it's just a humbling experience, I think, of anybody who's been that far down and to come so far. And then I think you have this huge just want to change the world and help. And you do that now through your job. And in so many ways, you want to change lives. And you see that in me, how I want to change lives. And it's so cool taking that atmosphere and taking that positive and wanting to go forward with it.
2: Yeah, a lot of life is just knowing your why. Why are you doing this? And one of my biggest drives is I will not be remembered for that. I will be remembered for dedicating my life to helping others in whatever facet I can. That is my new lookout in life.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. How can you ask for a better one when drinking consumed every mindset yeah. you had before, every thought you had? Now
2: it's not even tough getting up and saying, I want to be remembered as somebody who, who's... Want, you know what? I want to be remembered for being significant in other people's lives, being a hero in someone else's story. Not just my hero in my own mind, where woe is me, I'm not getting what I want. No, go live to make other people's lives better. It seems like such a simple concept, but people are just so caught up in their own heads sometimes. You know, and that's the dangerous place you can be.
0: No, it's very dangerous. And I, I know you know that because there's been times even through your journey where your own mind has tried to force you into relapsing. Do you oh, want to yeah. tell me about that a little bit?
2: Well, I do know that every great war has been won in the mind. <laughs> and thats You know what? I was very close one day when I had my record check looked at because I have a DUI, and it just came up not clear. And though it didn't matter at all, I had built it up in my mind so strongly of how I was going to relapse, even subconsciously. I just like knew how to do it without even planning it. And it was terrifying. But I knew I had to communicate with others. It was no longer a battle that I could win myself. And that was tough to accept. A lot of people are like, no, no, I just have to change. It's like, yes, you have to change, but also you have to ask for help. Because people want to help if they know you're trying to better yourself. There's there's always a hand to help you up if you fall, and as long as you hold your hand up to grab it.
0: Do you think that made a big difference for you, as having somebody that was there, readily available, like a recovery coach? Do you think that made a big difference Absolutely. in your life?
2: Absolutely. I looked forward to every minute that I got to spend with Ricky during my recovery. 100%. <laughs> I, look, I had it in my calendar how excited I was. I knew because we'd be talking about stuff that at the time I didn't trust with anybody else. Now, I, Now that I've built up some more relationships in my life, I open up to different avenues and different parts of my life to different people. And it's not all alone. You realize you're not actually alone once you start opening up. People are there to help mm. as long as you ask for it.
0: You think without that first initial person to be there step-by-step, it wouldn't have been that way,
2: though? Gosh, no. I think that it's so spread out at facilities like the Detox Center and not as one-on-one where I think people really need, because it feels safe. It's tough to open up in front of a... big big group of people I remember my first experiences at AA it took me about 7 months before I was able to be like hey you know what here's one issue I have and here's actually my backstory." it took 7 months whereas if I was sitting one on one with somebody I could do it within weeks where I was completely honest because I got the true feeling sitting one on one with somebody when they were vulnerable with me I could be vulnerable with them on a one on one environment
0: it seems to be that there's a lot of suggestions in Lethbridge just about what could make a difference to help people in their recovery journeys. Do you think more recovery coaches could be
2: that? 100% I believe that. I think for every person there should be a recovery coach. I know that's not feasible, but it sure would help. Even but one
0: to every 10 people, One though. to every
2: 10 people is absolutely possible. It is. because I think uh, the stats are out there. They know what it is in Lethbridge. It's rough right now. And we need help here. I see it every day and I wish I could help, but that's not my expertise. But there are these recovery coaches. That's their expertise to help them. We just need more of them. We need more people getting that message out.
0: It is. I think if people knew more that if there was this job that people really responded to and did well in through recovery, that we could get more funding for it. I think it's just people don't realize that this could be a big thing that makes a difference.
2: Absolutely. I agree 100%.
0: Did you, um, Francis, I just want to ask, notice any kind of like biases or perks that you ran into while in Lethbridge that you went through this city, through the systems, through the facilities? Did you notice any racism, any bias, or any perks that you may have received that others did not?
2: I think so. You know, as a straight white male... I, you know, you don't run into too much stuff, but you see a lot of it during the recovery process in Lethbridge, a lot of prejudice towards Indigenous people. Um, it, it seems like they just expect them to lash out, and when they do, there's like, it's kind of like a pushback instead of, okay, why are they lashing out? What can we do to help? It's just they expect it. But, but people of Caucasian, they'll lash out too, and there's a little more forgiveness on it. I find there's a little less, you know, get out of here.
0: Did you find you found more freedom to move around the system than others did?
2: Yeah, I found it a little easier, I can be honest. Um, you know, we, we came up with a plan at the start that I would go out every day and come back. And I don't know if that was ever offered to anybody else. I don't know everyone's situation, though, but I didn't. I just told them that was my demands going back into detox, so and we made a plan.
0: Would you say that your attitude though also helped contribute that to the responses from workers that you got? If you always had a very very positive attitude.
2: Absolutely. They they know who's dedicated to recovery. They they know when somebody's not using it as a bed that somebody's actually there to get better or to give it another shot. It's and they will focus on that and there's nothing wrong with that part because and yes you have to give everyone the shot just like everywhere in life because my philosophy in life is just see the potential in everybody but if people aren't going to rise up sometimes you have to focus on the ones who are rising up and really help them but you can't forget those who aren't because maybe they don't know how to ask they don't know the right avenues and Maybe there needs, that's the whole point of the recovery coach who can go through them and meet with them and kind of show them the avenues.
0: Make it more a person-centered approach, yeah, a unique approach for It has everybody. to
2: be a unique approach because the whole, the whole journey is so individual. It really is. Everyone's issues are very, very unique.
0: It is. I, I really like how you put that, you know. You see how it just needs to be a more person-centered approach, not just this is the one way it happens.
2: No, you can't paint with brush strokes when it comes to recovery. It's not the same approach for everybody.
0: No, Not at all. Do you have any suggestions that, you know, as you've gone through this system in the city, that you'd have to maybe improve it, or just to get people to maybe listen to different areas?
2: Well, I know they are building an actual transitional housing, which I've yet to see that operate yet, and until it does, I think it's a great idea for people who want to get better, a place to act, start integrating into society. But I, I don't really have the answers. Like, I, it's not my expertise. No. But I, I, wish, I wish I had the answers because I would switch careers immediately <laughs> to help as many people as possible. But, you know, just, I don't know, more transition, but proper transition. It can't be just, oh, here's a place to go. Now here, go do life, but we'll check in once a week. No. Well, that's not actual transition it's housing programs how to apply for housing how to apply for jobs resume building mm-hmm. how just, to cook how to, how grow to cook job. How, to grow, how to build a budget i know they mm-hmm. have like brushstroke ones but maybe sit down with maybe two or three people and do that not if you do it with 15 people you're going to get 15 people at different points of their recovery mm-hmm. exactly you really are
1: mm-hmm.
0: I think that's where the recovery coaches then again come back into play because they follow people outside of organizations. They follow people into their housing. They follow people through everything. And it comes back to it just really sounds like people need more one-on-one help with their recovery. And if the city really wants to help in some way, I think that's the big thing to put money to and hopefully city council can listen to is people need more one-on-one. We need recovery coaches, and that funding keeps getting pulled everywhere. Well, Francis, I want to say thank you so much for answering our questions. Is there anything else you'd like to say or Uh, anything else you want to add?
2: I just want to thank Ricky and Izzy from the bottom of my heart for them being part of my recovery. It's been an incredible journey. I'm still on that journey and will be for life, but I'm glad I have two friends to go on that journey with. So thanks, guys.
0: Well, thank you, Francis. and you know you've been a big part of my life, and a big part of our relationship came from the fact that both of us are recovering addicts, and we had to share in that vulnerability, and you've been now an amazing friend, and I thank you for that. Thanks. Izzy and I just wanted to take some time to kind of talk about the little hiatus that we have taken the last month and a half from working on the podcast. It's been really hard for us, but we wanted to address it as we both need to take some time for our mental health. Izzy, do you want to go first or do you want me to?
1: You go ahead, Ricky
0: Okay. All right. Um, well, I've been doing some EDMR therapy to kind of look at my past traumas That really fuel my personality disorders and my addiction sides and I have elected as a person to go untreated medication wise for my mental health and personality disorders so that I can be my most clear self because I want to be a therapist but in turn in order to do this I have to hold myself to another standard and heal all my trauma that fuels those parts of me that nobody wants to admit, that are manipulative and hurt people all to get ahead, which is a big part of who my addiction side of me fueled. And that's a big part of the trauma I grew up with, and that's something that I need to face and not let it affect personal relationships like it really does. So it's something I've been personally working on so that I can be a better self and be a better therapist so I can truly help others the way I want to. It was really hard though because I felt very cut off. I took a really big step back from all my friends, even from my wife, to try to deal with my own internal demons, I guess would be a good way to put them. It wasn't easy. Um, I've always been very much a staple for all my friends and their mental health and always to be where they're at no matter what but I found myself unable to do that and it was really hard mentally and even physically I felt just exhausted. So I've decided to really put the work into myself so I can be there better to support those who I love because they are the people you love in your life whether that's your maid family or your blood family. That's what's most important in how you treat them and how you treat those around you. And I wasn't doing that to the best of who I could be. And that's why I needed to take a step back in my life. But it is, it is something that wasn't easy, but I definitely wanted to take the time to share that with everybody because I think we need to talk about mental health more and talk about the sides of us that we don't like so that we are forced to change because when we are uncomfortable, that is when we change. No one changes when they're comfortable.
1: Absolutely. Your dreams die in the comfort zone, someone told me once.
0: That's so true.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really got to push yourself out there. Thank you for sharing all of that. You are just so vulnerable. Your quiet confidence is insane. Thank you. I guess. You're welcome. Me and you were on different boats the last month, but also very similar storms. Um, I was battling a lot with the fact that I definitely overbooked myself this summer. It felt like every weekend for the past four months I was off doing something, meeting with different people, going camping, played a lot of slow pitch, and like just felt like I was never taking a second to stop and breathe. And of course, I was working full time in between all that, and I had all my evenings booked up during the week too, so everything was just a mess. And um, I have been realizing that I've also done this at another stage in my life, which was when my mom passed away. So I started to realize, hey, I bet you I didn't take the time to grieve my dad's death just like I did with my mom. So I'm probably going to need to do that soon. And so now I am building up my strength to try... So hard to go 100% sober in the fall. Right now, I am actively using nicotine, weed, and I would say alcohol. Alcohol is more recreationally, but I've been really trying to change my relationships with these substances, and I know that I'm not going to be able to grieve when I have those substances on my side because I know that I use those as a distraction and a bit of a numbing, and it keeps me happy keeps me functional like I'm still a functioning member of society still working paying rent I'm going to the gym so frequently it's insane I have a great group of friends it's just these substances have kind of been a crutch for me and I know that I need to try and walk on my own soon so that's been really hard but on the plus side I found a really good partner who I'm very excited to be with and they're extremely supportive and I'm very excited to do this, knowing that I have them by my side. And on top of that, I have a great group of friends, aka roommates as well. So I am really nervous for the fall, but I know that I need to do it. So that's what's keeping me going. Yeah, that's definitely... It's definitely a scary
0: thing when you've been using even the lesser of substances that are so you know mind-altering like marijuana or alcohol or nicotine for a crutch and i most definitely have fit right along with you and there is and we're gonna take a little break together so we can both feel what we need to feel so we can heal properly and then you know it's it's not saying anything against the substances like like for sure it's just for us we both at some point in our lives want to feel our emotions fully and We're in a place now to actually support each other, both do it. So I think it'll be easier to do together. So we'll
1: let everybody know how that goes. We'll do a couple recordings then. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And honestly, even just knowing that I have you on this journey has been so nice. Because even just this morning, I was feeling so much shame around my substance use that it I ended up talking it out with Ricky cuz Ricky said to me, "Hey, we're going to go downtown today. Are you ready?" Like you got 40 minutes and I was like, "Whoa, dude, yeah." So since we had that plan, that talk a couple hours ago about going downtown, I've um I've actually discovered I'm going through some stuff right now emotionally. And so I loaded it all out on Ricky. I was like, "Hey, so I'm feeling a lot of shame. I think I just, I feel like such a bad person. All those negative stigmas about substance use that society has portrayed on me, I am now portraying on myself. Even though I know I don't believe in those stigmas and those negative things, I was still feeling like I was such a sinful person. And I just, like, was, like, literally the bottom of the barrel. I'm, like, the last person who should deserve anything good, which fucking sucked this morning. And then Ricky talked it out with me. And we figured out the root behind those emotions. And that is because as a child growing up, my parents were obviously alcoholics. And so any conversation I had with anyone, any adults even in particular outside of my parents, it was always, well, your parents are alcoholics. Like your mom, I wish she would just stop drinking. Like I wish your dad would just stop drinking. I wish they would stop smoking, even cigarettes. Well, cigarettes are going to kill your parents. And like even just stuff like that. It's been <laughs> resurfacing, and so those things that were told to me about my parents when I was a child, I am now telling myself.
0: And so, what you have to remember, though, is, is did your parents love you? Yeah. Were your parents bad people?
1: No. Were
0: your parents victims of a broken society who didn't have any support and used their addiction as a crutch? Absolutely. Does that make them bad people or bad parents? No. Did they love you to the best of their ability every single day? They did. And that makes you so much wealthier than so many others. And I'm sorry that your parents didn't have the support they needed. Me too. But you and I, we're gonna change that, bud. We might as well. Because fuck it, the system's broken.
1: Yeah. And feeling like this sucks.
0: And no one needs to feel like this. No. no one needs to be ashamed for something they can't control and need help with.
1: Yeah,
0: Blaming victims is never going to work. Mm-hmm. We need to fix the problem. And addiction is not the problem. Mm-hmm. It's just a consequence of what is happening in someone's life. And that is how they cope. Mm-hmm. It is a Absolutely. symptom. It is not the problem. People need to stop looking at the addiction first. Mm-hmm. Look at the person. Mm-hmm. Izzy, you're one of the most empathetic people i know and you've gone through most horror and why do you think that is because of who your parents were Mm -hmm. as people Mm -hmm. not addicts first Mm -hmm. people first Mm because you're a good person first they Mm -hmm. were good people first and i'm sorry that their addiction won in the end but it doesn't have to be that way for everyone else
1: You just, you say it so wonderfully that, like, when I start talking about this to you, I'm feeling like crap. And then by the time I'm finished, I'm smiling. It's like a fucking weight has been lifted off my shoulders because you've brought to light the fact that, like, it's okay. It is. It's okay. This is normal. This is not something that I need to feel crappy about. I don't need to beat myself up over more. Like, I've already been through enough shit. I don't need to be rude to myself. I need to be gentle. I need to be compassionate with myself. Vulnerable. I need to be... And connect. Vulnerable. <laughs> I love... I have a love-hate with that, relation, with that word. Love-hate relationship with that word. It's kind
0: of weird. The system's kind of always designed, and society in general is kind of designed to keep you depressed, keep you from connecting, and keep you from being most vulnerable to people. Because when we connect and we're vulnerable and we come together, we're extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. And we have the means to change policy and Mm -hmm. affect change and that's scary Mm -hmm. and it should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're just talking here about the encampments how there's a lot less because the police have decided to start tearing them all down and what are they doing, Francis? What
2: a terrible solution, guys.
0: They're giving tickets, apparently. They're
2: ticketing people who don't have money for a place to live so they're Asking for money from them. This doesn't make any sense.
0: Where's the logic? They're literally going to use that ticket to wipe their butt. It's going to be great. I hope they do.
2: And then I heard that they were going to open the civic center for people to stay. What a great, great idea, you know, indoors.
0: Another shelter, which is highly needed. Not
2: not bad idea, but then the classic NIMBY comes up, a George Carlin quote, not in my backyard. (laughs) Nobody wants it, but like everyone wants a solution, but they don't want to actually get the solution.
0: Nobody wants to see the solution. Nobody wants to see the solution. Nobody wants to see the problem. Wow, I think it's just going to fade away.
2: sweep it to the north side. (laughs) To the side.
0: Seriously though. This city is the biggest hypocrite ever. Oh, we need solutions. We need to fix this. Oh, well, here's a solution. Oh, no, we can't see it. Oh, my goodness. We better freak Unreal. out about it.
2: Unreal. Oh,
0: my goodness. This city is so funny. They could fix this solution if they wanted to. But it's so funny when they say to you, like, the police are coming downtown for public safety and then they want to tear down people's camps. You're not there to protect anyone, but the property owner those tents are sitting on. Congratulations, you just protected some grass. Yeah, Ooh.
2: unbelievable.
0: Really good job, city. You protected that's the some concern. grass. the grass that people this, are on, not the people dying. This isn't human lives. <laughs> what are they?
2: Human lives.
0: Like, these like, are people. It actually is, like, that's the thing. These aren't
2: just pawns protect- on a chessboard you can move around. <laughs> From and A to so B, funny no. Because
1: there's a chessboard right in front of us too at this moment. Oh,
2: unreal!
0: <laughs> I love how the city loves to put little things like that. Oh, we have picnic tables with chessboards. It's a friendly downtown. Yes. Really? Maybe just some housing, some supportive programs. No, that's crazy. But a new playground. Yep, that's oh, feasible. Yes. How much? That's a five hundred thousand dollar playground that they want to put in this park. In a park that no one wants to come near yeah, because there's so much crime and homelessness and drugs. And then I'm like, but sure, no one can use the park to live in, but let's just turn it into I a I got playground.
2: a solution. Yeah. Just ticket them. Gosh, mm-hmm. no. It yeah, doesn't that's, work.
0: That's going to that's gonna survive it all. It's really funny oh. that people are starting to finally see even just, like, what the police do. It's like, are the police really there to protect and serve? No. They're there to put city council's agenda forward. Truthfully. Yeah. The police work for city council in the city. They don't protect people. They were there to protect people. They would tell the city, well the homeless people have nowhere to go and they're safe there and we're going to monitor and make sure they're safe there. If they were for the people they would do that. Absolutely.
2: Ticket them don't bring them to jail because jail costs money. Mm-hmm. We'll just move them around and mm-hmm. hopefully we find a place where people right? don't complain enough that they're there.
0: Yeah. What not The police, they say they're advocates for human rights. Why not go after city council for not providing basic human rights for people that live in this city? Absolutely. Oh, and
2: I do want to back, I don't think homeless people should all go to jail. I want to just nip <laughs> that in the butt right here, folks. Your sarcasm folks.
0: was implied, My Francis. sarcasm
2: is implied.
0: Good
1: job. Like, Good job.
0: Good call. Wanna... Yeah, we're having we're having a very hard time with the backwardness of the system here. At some point we need to stop blaming the victims of a broken society and fix society because again, addiction and homelessness are symptoms of a broken society. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Depths of Methbridge. We are Rick and Izzy. Follow us on Instagram at methbridgeyql or on TikTok at methbridge. If anything this podcast triggered you and you feel in crisis, please do not hesitate to reach out and call the crisis lines. Catch our next episode on the 20th of every month. Have a good day, humans.